Muy buenas tardes. Muy buenas tardes. ¿Cómo están? Me llamo Bernabé Choi. Me llamo Gloria Choi Kim. <laughs> Amén. Uh, mucho gusto. Eh, ayer llegamos a Miami, uh, anteayer llegamos a Miami y dormimos en Miami para venir acá, ¿no? Ahora, uh, primera, primera vez antes de aquí visitamos. Estamos muy contentos. Muchas gracias, Pastor Paul. Eh, y no sé, <risa> ahora mi lengua, mi, mi lengua, mi cerebro están queriendo torcerse, ¿no? Un poquito, porque eh, aquí estamos en la, iglesia, en la iglesia que habla inglés, pero mi idioma es español, pero mi español quiere torcerse, ¿no? Como, como con, con español, o no sé, <risa> como algo, ¿no? Y bueno, eh, Estamos aquí en este lugar para visitar, ¿no? porque vinimos acá para visitar eh, para mi familia de mi hijo, porque tengo nieto y ahora están cumpliendo un año y por eso vinimos a visitarlo. Y, pero aprovechamos también venir a este lugar. ¿no? Muchas gracias, Pastor, por darnos una oportunidad para saludarle. Um, bueno, let, eh, let me just uh, translate, because if you go too far, I don't think I'm going to forget. <laughs> So we came yesterday, uh, day yesterday Miami, uh, day before Miami, and came here. We are glad to be here. It's strange. It's a little awkward for me to speak Spanish in front of uh, most of you who don't speak or speak English. But we are here because of our children have uh, uh, their children. So they have two grandchildren, and one of them is in Dallas, and they are celebrating the first birthday. That's why they came to visit their family. Mm. Uh, lo siento mucho porque no puedo hablar en inglés, porque cuando estamos en jóvenes, antes de escoger países a donde vamos a trabajar, entonces mi esposa me dijo, vamos a escoger un país que no hablamos inglés. <laughs> no, porque ella todavía no sabe inglés, yo poquito, ¿no? yo sabía hablar inglés, entonces ella dijo, bueno, vamos a escoger un país que no habla nadie, que no, no habla inglés. Vamos a escoger un idioma que es español. Bueno, eh, Dios tenía un plan, plan para enviarme a Bolivia, donde hablan español, ¿no? Pero nosotros estamos en competencia. ¿Ella habla bien o yo hablo bien, no? <laughs> so, before we uh, picked a place to go as a missionary, uh, my wife asked me to let's go place where they don't speak English. So, uh, so they decided to go to Bolivia where they, sp they speak Spanish, and uh, now they try to see who speaks a better Spanish. Sí. Por eso no puedo hablar muy bien en inglés, debo disculpar. Bueno, estamos, eh, estamos trabajando 27 años en Bolivia, y desde 35 años, ahora ya tengo, tenemos 62 años. Y bueno, uh, muchas gracias por, por la iglesia. Forest Church, que to, to support us. Muchas gracias. So I've been in the Bolivia 26 years. 27 years. 27 years. 27 years. And uh, well, I forgot your Naigal uh, Mukhsanin. Oh, he's a 62. So he has another 26 years to go. Uh, 27 years to go. So he will complete 90. Yeah. Eh, estamos trabajando en Bolivia, en Casa Grecia, que hemos aprendido hace 14 años. 
y ahora tenemos buen resultado, el crecimiento bastante y también estamos influyendo a los pastores bolivianos para que ellos también hagan y ahora eh, estamos eh, creciendo ¿no? en Bolivia, la casa iglesia. So we've been doing a house church in Bolivia for 14 years and actually we are doing house church seminars and training for the Bolivian pastors so that there are so many Bolivian actually churches and pastors are doing house church ministry. This, he didn't say this, but the Pastor Bernabe Choi, what is he doing there is what the New Life Church is doing in Houston. So they have, uh, they host uh, pastors training and uh, lay leaders training and uh, he will tell us a little bit about those. And then fruit is amazing. The, 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 the growth of the church and the evangelism is, uh, is, 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 will be shocking. Muchas gracias por orar por nosotros, también apoyar también. Estamos muy contentos porque yo veo que ahora la iglesia está creciendo más. Amén. En próximo próxima visita, entonces yo quisiera, que, quisiera ver ¿no? más, eh, la iglesia está creciendo, que lo llena más, salvar alma y hacer discípulos. Muchas gracias. So, next time, I, I was so glad, I'm so grateful for your prayer support, and then also I'm glad to see churches are growing, and hopefully next time I come here, we'll share more. So, let's give them a hand. Muchas gracias. Pastor Bernabe Choi didn't say, but he actually is running a K-11, K a private Christian school. Actually, the largest private school in this town. And then we, helped, we also participated. So one Christmas, we gave, a, a, we, 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 we supported their, the purchase of the, some of the land over there. And also, he's doing a, a mission work at the a prison. And uh, out of, ha, ha, Sunday, uh, uh, regular attendance is about 250. But uh, those pastors who are training by him, they also have uh, several churches with, uh, you know, uh, in, America, in Texas, maybe 250, you know, attendance is no big deal. In South America, it's a mega church. Because most churches is below 50. So it's amazing the amount of fruit God is, you know, blessing our Pastor Bernabe. And uh, seriously, uh, it is our privilege, great blessing, to partner with a, a missionary pastor who really working hard and the expanding kingdom of God. Some of you heard that I'm very, very cautious and skeptical, even cynical toward the missionaries, but we have a good mission partner. So let's give them a hand. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But many people are not free. I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians who claim to know the truth. Why are so many Christians who know the truth not free, but still frustrated? Once again, I'm talking about ourselves. And French Chen started his bestseller, Crazy Love, with this confession. I grew up believing in God without having a clue what he is like. I call myself Christian, was pretty involved in church, tried to stay away from all the things that good Christians avoid, drinking, drugs, sex, swearing. 
Christianity was simple. Fight your desires in order to please God. Whenever I failed, which was often, I'd walk around feeling guilty and distant from God. In hindsight, I don't think my church's teaching were incorrect, just incomplete. My view of God was narrow and small. I totally concur with the French Chan's confession that many Christians struggle in their faith walk because of their view of God is just narrow and small. In 1955, J.B. Phillip wrote another Christian classic entitled, Your God is Too Small. According to Phillips, our inadequate, faulty conception of God, which still lingers unconsciously in our mind, prevent our catching of a glimpse of a true God. You know, at Forest Community Church, my role as a pastor and teacher is to make sure that everyone knows the true core biblical view of God. That's why Cornerstone Bible Study, Livingstone Bible Study, Seven Reality of Experiencing God, or John Discipleship 1 and 2 and Genesis Discipleship are so important and they're helpful. And each class will liberate you from your shallow, narrow understanding of God and Christ and even discipleship. So even though this is not a time to you know, sign up, but I hope you gotta, you, you'll be ready when we announce the next quarter of a Christopher College. Now, we've been studying Colossians, and Colossian church had a similar struggle like many Christians today due to their lack of a full, deep understanding of God. Colossian church was a small church, if you remember, started by the Apostle Paul's disciple Epaphras. And uh, as a result, this young church was challenged by several false teachers, false religious teachers around them. Some of them were Hellenistic, Gnostic, Gnostic ascetics, ascetics, those who kind of uh, into a self-denial, fasting and those things. And some were Jewish legalists, some were pagan mystics. But they all said the same thing. That is, Jesus Christ is not enough for you to experience true spiritual life. And you need to have a Jesus plus our teachings to be full and perfect. In that sense, I think we are Colossians. Because the world around us constantly tells us you need to have this or that to be happy or fulfilled. The world and Satan constantly lies to us that Jesus is good, but it's not good enough. And that's why I believe the Colossians is so relevant and important to us. And today's text is what many Pauline scholars consider the most important and core theology of Paul in the Colossians. I must you know, confess that I was drawn to study of Colossians because of today's passage. So with that, let's read our passage together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, and then let's read it responsively. I'm going to read first. The Son is the image of an invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is a head of the body, the church. He is a beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. 
so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, had, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. What we just read was a pre-Pauline hymn. Apostle Paul did not write this poem, but quoted an already existing hymn of the New Testament churches here. By the way, this is not the first time Paul you know, cited hymns in his letters. He did that several times. Most famous one is the Philippians chapter 2, so-called the hymn of a canonic Christology. Canonic means empty. Do you remember that Christ humbled himself and the empty himself became a nothing to save and exalt us? Philippians 2, right? I think Paul cited this hymn in a perfect spot in this letter because if you remember, first part of Colossians, Paul was greeting them, right? And in the greeting, he was thanking them for their work of faith and love and hope. And then last, the next part was his prayer, his constant prayer for them, that they filled with the knowledge of God, right? And oftentimes, Paul loved to end his prayers with a doxology, praise. So this one, quoting this incredible hymn of praise, it makes sense. Now, the key word in this psalm, or in this hymn that we just read, is the one word that is all. All. In Greek word, the all is a pass. Starting from verse 11 to, uh, Paul used the word all 10 times in nine verses. Paul prays that Colossians endured all things with all strengths that comes from Christ. And who is this Christ? He is the one in whom all things are created. Who is before all things, in whom all things hold together. He is the first of all things, and all the fullness of God dwells in him, and all things are reconciled to God through him. So this repeated use of all or past, not just to create the nice rhythm of him, but much more, it creates a deep sense of a confidence in who Christ is. Paul trying to tell us nothing is outside of Christ and everything under his sovereign control. And there is no situation that Colossians might face that Christ is not already there. So one uh, biblical scholar said, Paul is a tenaciously emphatic that whatever the problem Christ is a solution. So I call this a hymn of a hymn of a, a cosmic Christ. Cosmic Christ, or hymn of a cosmic Christology, has a two verses or two senses and which empower our faith in Christ and energize our faithfulness for him. So first stanza praises the sovereignty of a Christ the creator. So look at the verse 15 and 17. The Son is the image of an invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. Here we notice that three important truths about Christ the Creator. The first, verse 15 said, the Son is the image of an invisible God. 
In Jesus Christ, the invisible God has become a visible. You know, Old and New Testament agree that no one has ever seen God. But in Christ, we see God perfectly. That's why John chapter 1, 18 says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God, in the closest relationship with the Father. Actually, translation is a bosom of the Father made him known to us. So all religion in the world, when they talk about God, it's not that they know God or they saw God, but they just imagine about God. So some of you know, I was a Buddhist, but it was a Christ who turned me from religion to revelation. But in Jesus Christ, we see the character and the nature of an invisible God perfectly and visibly. And that's why John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them from out of my hand. And my Father who hasn't given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus said his hand and God's Father's hand, the same thing. No one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. And at the end, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Once again, no Jewish rabbi and prophet ever made a, such a radical declaration of a self-identification self-identification with the Yahweh. You know, Jewish people say, here Israel, Yahweh, our Lord is one. Jesus said, no, Yahweh and I are one. That's why later in John chapter 14, when Philip asked Jesus to show us the Father, what did Jesus say? Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you so long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen what? The Father. Such a claim could not be made of any angels or spiritual power. Christ's sovereignty is attested by his personal and the unique relationship to God. The result of incarnation is that invisible God has become a visible in God-man Jesus Christ. One day, a young mother was working at home and saw her little boy was drawing some pictures. So mom asked the boy, her son, what are you drawing? And the little boy said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And mom commented, oh really? But no one knows what God looks like. And then boy replied, they will when I get through. You know, there is a rather uh, profound truth in this story when it is applied to Jesus. It is as though the little baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem is a picture of God being drawn for us. And when that baby finishes a life work, we will know what God is like. And that's what Jesus did. And Jesus tells us and invites us that if you come to him, you will know God personally and intimately. Amen? The second truth about Christ the Creator, which this hymn teaches us, is that Christ is not only revealer of God, but rightful heir and the ruler of the universe. That's what it means, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn over all creation. 
Here, the firstborn doesn't mean the son was ever born or created. You know, that's how Jehovah Witnesses, they read the verse. By the way, cult like Jehovah Witnesses, they are not original. You know, Jehovah Witnesses actually copied the Christology of a 4th century heretic named Arius, who understood this expression firstborn or begotten in a temporal sense, temporal sense. He thought, you know, begotten just like, so he, he said that God the Father is eternal, but Jesus, some, you know, was not eternal like God the Father, and at some point God gave a birth to Jesus or existence to Jesus, so Jesus began to exist. So he's not as eternal as God. He's a semi-God. He's like God, but not like God. He's not the same as God. Now, in the Bible, firstborn is an expression of a status and position rather than that of a birth order and chronology. For instance, God called David the firstborn in Psalm 89, 27. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth, and I'll maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I'll establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. As those of you read the Bible, King David was the youngest of his brothers, but God called him his firstborn. Why? Because God promised David the messianic king to David's line. So firstborn in the Bible does not refer to priority of a time, but actually primacy of a function. Primacy of a function. So uh, one New Testament, uh, uh, actually, scholar named uh, uh, Scott uh, Magnite, whose commentary that I'm actually one of is I, I'm using for our you know study here, he said this: in these references of a firstborn. It is his status, not his birth order, is in view. His superiority more than his temporality. His status is superior because temporarily he is before all things. Hierarchically, he is above all things. Ontologically, he sustains all things. And that's why the early Christians clarified the meaning of the firstborn later in the Nicene Creed in the 4th century when they condemned the Arius and they hear uh, Aryan Christology, which was confusing many people back then. So let me quote briefly the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed, which is the expansion of uh, you know, Apostles' Creed, said this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, life from light, true God from true God, begotten and made of the same essence as the Father through him, all things were made. So Jesus, as a firstborn of all creation, means he is a heir and the ruler of all creation. Now the last truth about Christ the creator, that he not only created everything, but he continually sustains everything, and ultimately he will perfect everything. So look at the verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You know, to emphasize Christ's present and continuous sovereignty over all creation, 
Apostle Paul used the three prepositions here. In him, through him, and for him. In him, through him, and for him. In him are all things means Christ is greater than all things combined. He is what theologians and philosophers say is the ground of all being. All beings have existence because of Christ. Or someone called him fountain of all existence. Through him and for him means that Christ is both the agent and goal of creation. It's now one of the many intermediary spiritual powers as the false teachers in Colossae claims. He cannot be relegated to the same inferior position as other spiritual powers like angels. For all creation find this goal in Christ alone. So book of Revelation says Christ is the Alpha and Omega of all creation. And this hymn repeats Christ's incomparable supremacy in the verse 17. That is, uh, it is a Christ whose power, I mean, he said, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It is a Christ whose power and love holds every atom of everything together. By the way, do you know how hard it is to break an atom? Do we have any physics majors here? Physics majors? The smart, brilliant people? No? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Han is a physics major. I'm going to show you a picture. This is a picture of a SLAC National Lab. SLAC stands for Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, which is located in Menlo Park, California. Linear accelerator is a two miles long underground that crosses a beautiful highway 280. It takes a several gigawatts of electricity to make an atom travel in the vacuum tube and collide each other and break down. And do you know how powerful one gigawatt is? One gigawatt can power. Okay, I'm looking at a Nick who is working for. What is that the energy provider? Energy deal? He's an energy dealer, so he knows energy better than me. Sorry. Okay. One gigawatt can power 750,000 households. In other words, it takes a huge energy to collide and break an atom. And do you know why it's so hard to break an atom? Today, the scripture tells us because the crisis of holding all things together. You know, every atom in the oxygen that we breathe in is intact because of Christ's sustaining power. Amen? Now, what does all this mean to us practically? What is the implication of a cosmic Christ to us? Before we go to the second verse of the hymn to look at in detail, I want, to reckon, I want us to reckon one thing here today. Our lack of appreciation about cosmic Christ listen to me, leaves us unfree, but frozen in worries and anxieties. You know, our worries implies that we don't trust that God is big enough, powerful enough, or loving enough to take care of what's happening in our life. Our inadequate apprehension, understanding of Christ's power as a creator, ruler, and sustainer of the universe make us so prone to fall into the power of a chaos and the fear of a confusion. 
How big is your Christ? How powerful and loving is your Christ? Is your Christ is a cosmic and infinite? Or is it small and narrow, confined to your own feelings and mood swings? Do you see your problem through Christ or you see Christ through your problems? I'm particularly bringing this point because a mental health is ultimately failure of aligning your subjective reality to objective reality. A lot of us just look at our mental state as the ultimate reality. That is not ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is who Christ is, what he does, and how much he loves us. Amen? So when I pray for the people's mental health, I pray that Holy Spirit grab their subjective reality and help them to see the ultimate objective reality. You know, without that objective reality, I'm no better than anybody. I'm just crazy like everybody else, maybe degree-wise. In the, this Friday house church, people were just talking about a, what is a carnival, you know, serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, whatever, you know? And uh, at the time, I, I, was, I couldn't, I was speaking sort of, a, you know, someone is speaking behind, you know, in my mind, they were saying, I feel like that. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer is a really, it's a grotesque and whatever. But if you don't, if I didn't meet Christ, you know, you don't know how grotesque I could be. Without Christ, I might not eat you alive. I, I might not eat you, but I'll eat you differently. I'll be selfish, selfish, you know, cunning sinner just like anybody else. Without Christ, we are all, you know, we are, we, we, we are monsters. Now, on this note, Francis Chen rightfully challenges. So let me quote one more time. Francis Chen said, God of this universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, galaxies and E minor, loves us with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And what is our typical response? We go to church, sing some, sing some songs, and try not to cuss to this cosmic Christ and his infinite love. We treat him with our religiosity and with our petty, pious response, and we think that's all God is. Cosmic Christ means Everything that I see, everything that I hear, everything I feel, everything I smell came from God. I'm praising God. All creation around us is praising God. How about me? How about you? Are you praising God for every second of your existence? You know, G.K. Chesterton said that if a God withdraws from universe, universe is going to fall and shatter like a crystal ball. It's absolutely right. It's Christ's love and power holding everything together. Amen? Let me share with uh, what Apostle Paul thinks about our proper response to cosmic Christ. So if the first stanza of the hymn is about the foundation of a life, that is a Christ the, the creator, the second stanza is the focus, focus, that is a concentration 
of a Christ the creator. Look at the verse 18 to 20. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So that in everything, actually all things in Greek, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So verse 18, the word, with the word end, the hymn now transition from cosmic Christ to Christ's commitment and affection for the church. By the way, New Testament scholars, they debate if this part of the hymn, the second stanza, was a Paul's revision or still part of the original song. To me, the more important question was if a Paul's theology is a congruent with the, this second stanza. And... Uh, I personally think that uh, the second sense sounds like a Paul's ecclesiology because uh, Paul used a body metaphor before, body metaphor the church in his other letters like Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians. You know, Paul, Christ and the church are inseparable. Do you know, do you know why? For Christ, for Paul, Apostle Paul, Christology and ecclesiology born at the same time because do you remember when Paul was going to Damascus and persecuting Christians, and the Christ Jesus appeared to him in the middle of it in the vision, and what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my disciples? Is that what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? Why do you persecute me? And that's where Paul learned. Jesus knows what his disciples are going through. When I persecute them, their pain goes to Jesus. Because he's the head of the church. So Christ, Christology and Ecclesiology, they always go together. So one theologian here said that Paul does not exalt in some heavenly abstraction. The poem's second stroke brings the cosmic Christ down to earth, where blood flows from the body sprung up on a cross. So Son not only reigns as a firstborn of all creation, but the firstborn of a new creation called the church. Church is the new creation. That's why the hymn says, verse 18, he's a head of a body, the church, he's a beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The resurrection language in the Bible always describes the new creation started by Christ. And it is healthy to remind ourselves that church is a new creation. Because many Christians and churches seem to forget that. And church is a something eternally new, which the world has never seen. You know, in Ephesians, Paul called the church is a mystery of God. And the word mystery or mysterion is a lowly term, very popular term back then, among the mystery religious people. And Paul said they're a true mystery. The true knowledge or secret of a reality is not some kind of mystical experience. No, it's actually church. The sinners come together, call each other brother and sister, and love each other as God loved us. That is the mystery. That is the power. That's what Paul is saying. Church is different from any organization and organism among human, you know, man-made you know, organizations. It is sad things to observe the loss of this biblical concept among Christians. As I interact with many pastors and Christians, I have noted that 
people, the way that people think about their churches. And uh, I'm afraid the most widespread concept is that their church is some kind of religious country club operated for the enjoyment and benefit of their members. They make their own rules, exist for their own purposes. Church is more like a hotel for saints. That's a far cry from the New Testament description of the church. So in this hymn of a cosmic Christ reminds us of a three incredible and important truths about church. First of all, there is an organic relationship between Christ and the church in that we must remember not only headship of Christ, but also bodyship of the church. Bodyship of the church. What is a bodyship of the church? In several Greek sources, including writings of Plato, Stoics, and the Alexandrian Jew name of Philo, very well known back then, there were numerous mythological conceptions of a universe as a body governed by the head. So common belief in the Greco-Roman world back then was that just like a physical body, human physical body needs a direction and guidance from the head, so the body of a cosmos needs a head such as a logos or wisdom as a unifying principle. And that's what, the, you know, what Greeks attribute to the wisdom and logos for headship, Apostle John actually attribute to Christ as the divine logos that controlled the universe. Do you remember John 1? In the beginning, there was a word. The Greek word for word is a logos. And logos with God, and logos was God, and everything was made through the logos, and logos became a flesh, and that's a Jesus. And the new development in Colossians here is that Paul interpreted the body not as a cosmos, but as a church. In another word, although Christ is the head of the whole universe or cosmos, church is his body. Church is his body. So bodyship of the church is such an incredible truth that must comfort every church and empowers especially small churches like Colossians and like us. And then let me now share my favorite quote so far in the, my study of uh, Colossians. This is my favorite quote. This quote kept me alive and kept me so happy last, you know, uh, three, uh, almost a month. Written by a young New Testament scholar named Ryan Schellenberg. He said this, The most of our neighbors in Colossae, the little cluster of Christ followers gathered by Epaphras, would probably have the look rather pathetic. Why? They have no temple, no priest, not even proper meeting place. Just a ragtag group of misfits caught up in a Jewish superstition they had to learn secondhand. But here they are invited to imagine their place in the world quite differently. As a local vanguard of a movement cosmic in its scope, it is not just that the gospel is bearing from the whole world, no, it is a whole universe, God's entire created order, cosmos. That is a being remade in the gospel of Christ, and the Colossian believers are in on it. I don't know about you. I love this expression. 
ragtag groups of misfits caught up in the Jewish superstition that they learned secondhand. You know, you're not in. When I read that, I was, you know, I, you think you are, we are great? You know, think uh, Forest is a great church? Mm. <laughs> I've been to a few churches, so I know we are not that great. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, that's, you know, I, you know, misfit, fit me well. I'm a misfit. You are misfit. We are misfit. We are a ratted group of mystic, misfit. And we believe in a really Jewish superstition. That, and the Jewish people is the last people to believe in incarnation. And this strange group of Jewish people called Christians, well, whatever, people of the way, they believe that Jesus is the infleshed Yahweh. Did you see it? We all heard it from second hand. And we believe it. We banked my life, our life on it. So we are the Colossians. World see us weird. But we are wonderful to God. Do you know that? The beauty and blessing of a Colossian church and every church comes from being a body of Christ, a cosmic ruler and eternal king. So let me ask us, Forest Church, do you realize that we are most blessed new body of a king of the universe? Do you know that God is pleased to indwell in us with all of his fullness? And God wants to make us this beautiful, healthy, strong body to manifest his glorious presence in this world? Do you know how blessed we are? Do you know how much God sees us with love? Do you know that we are the Bible that non-Christians read? Do you know they make a judgment about God through us? You know, I actually believe that's why God will judge his church first. Because God gave us a greater blessing than all other people. The more blessing you receive, the more accountability we have. With the first recognition of blessedness of a cosmic Christ body, let us recognize the second important truth. The most important thing about a body is a connection to its head. If you stand in, a front, in front of a mirror, you notice there are two parts of a, two, a body, right? Uh, the knob up on top with a more or less a hair. We call it head, right? It's, this is a control center of the body. And the rest of the body with its appendages, arms, and legs, this is all part of the trunk. So this is a body. This is a body, right? And what is a body? Good body is a head runs the body. Head runs the body. Many churches and Christians seem to forget this simple truth. Have you ever felt that uh, your head was removed from your body? It doesn't seem that any of, any of you have that experience since most of you seems very well attached. When I was young, and, you know, I went to my grandfather's uh, country house in South Korea during summer vacation. And back then, we didn't buy chickens uh, at the grocery store, all nicely packaged in plastic. My grandfather went out the backyard and ran a chicken down and then removed his head. Have you seen chicken chopped? You know, when chicken had a head cut off, 
It doesn't die quickly or quietly. For a while, it jumps and runs around out of control before it finally dies. This head cut off chicken reminds me of churches that lose their awareness of head. They also go out of control. They don't know what to do. They run about, become involved in things they, they ought not to. Are we all well connected to the head? Let me ask you, is a crisis ahead of your life? Is he your control tower? Or is he just a figure ahead? Is he just a figure ahead? You know, I feel that many Christians today seem to treat Jesus as a British people treat their monarchs. You know how British people, they treat so-called the constitutional monarch? They strip him or her of all political powers, and they don't expect their sovereign to do anything at all except to look good. They treat their monarchs with a great respect and reverence, pay much lip service, you know, your highness, you know but they really don't expect anything from them because their monarch is a figurehead. That is the way that Christians all too often treat the Lord Jesus. The passage calls us back to treat the face the fact that who Jesus is and the who Jesus is that he is in charge of the entire universe and he loves us to transform us in his body. So let me ask you another question today. Is a Jesus your real king? Who is your king? Who is your king? Or is a Jesus a figurehead? Is a Jesus is a king of your relationship? Jesus is a king of your finance? King of your mind? King of your body? Finally, this hymn tells us the mission of Christ and the church. Look at the verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and making peace through the, his blood shed on the cross. Mission of the church, uh, mission of the Christ, the ruler of the universe and the head of the church is what? According to verse 18, I'm uh, verse you know, uh, uh, 20, is a reconciliation. And recon reconciliation implies estrangement and hostility. Anybody who tried to reconcile with someone, you know the pain and difficulty of reconciliation. I just, you know, my wife and I, we just had to work, work on that, you know, last weekend with one of our family members. So reconciliation, it's, it's not easy. It's not pleasant at all. And then Christ has to die on the cross. The reconciliation with God is possible. But now, here we must be very careful because some people take the Christ's reconciling all things to God, whether on earth and heaven, in the wrong way. They think it's a proof text of what is called the universal salvation. You know, have you heard of a universal salvation? At the end, God will save everyone, including Satan, fallen angels, universal salvation. Salvation is universal. Everyone is included. Whether you're aware or not, or you want it or not, God will save you all at the end. Some sincere Christians misunderstand and went in this wrong direction of universal salvation. Origin, for instance, origin of Alexandria, very creative, great third century church father, he did. 
and today, some of you probably read the book. There is a guy named Richard Rohr, very popular Roman Catholic monk, friend of Oprah, and the many celebrities who have a spiritual yearning or whatever. This is making similar mistake with his brand of so-called transformational Christianity. So those of you like the Richard Wall, you need to come and talk to me because I just read his book and I've been kind of studying because a lot of people ask me about him and I finally found out he quotes many, many great stuff, but I don't think all those people that he quoted, I don't think they will, they will agree with him, his whole theology. He's taught, he speaks, he captures this... Uh, this people's sensibility, actually a lot of his critics about the current evangelical churches, I think is right. It's really right. This only thing is solution is really wrong. So anyway. Paul is not talking about universal salvation here. Paul never espoused such a naive ultimate salvation of all. What he repeated here, if you notice, is the location of a reconciliation was the blood of Christ which means a historical event on, on, on Calvary. So what Paul is saying that through Christ, reconciliation of anyone with God is possible. That's what he's saying. C.S. Lewis said this in the mere Christianity. In the same way, church exists for nothing else but draw men into Christ and make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedral, clergy, mission, sermons, even Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. I think C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. You know, established churches, they could be easily self-deceived because they have a nice facility. They have, a, you know, professional staff. They might have a very ample, you know, a budget. And they have an extraordinary of reputation in the, in the whatever community. But like a main business of a hospital is what? Look good? What is the main business of a hospital? Save the dying and heal the sick. What is the main business of the church? It's to save the lost and disciple them to save their lost friend. That is the main business of the church. And that is our mission. Amen. You know, once I heard a very you know, interesting, sad story about English boathouses from an English-American pastor named Stuart Briscoe, father of Pete Briscoe, former pastor of a Bentry Church. I think a father was greater than son, anyway. <clears throat> and mother also, Jill Briscoe, Frisco, you know, they're great people. Anyway, did you know... Uh, Right now, there are many private yacht clubs in Dover Strait. Dover Strait is straight between England, England Channel, and, uh, and France. Originally, all these yacht clubs used to be rescue boat houses. Why? In olden days, many English fishermen is working in the narrow strait. The current is really rough, and once in a while, bad weather, there's, you know, fishing boat tumbled upside down and they are survived, they are saved by the other people. And those who rescued you know, sailors or fishermen, they came back and they wanna they they wanna, you know, 
They want to do the same for the other people. So they built both houses. And by the way, that's how Dunkirk, you know, did you see the movie Dunkirk? That's not the first time that all the small boats went out and saved the, you know, soldiers. They've been doing that, you know, in for long, many, many, you know, years. But as the time went by, according to Sewell Briscoe, less people working on fishing, that means less maritime emergency, that means less rescue. So those people came to, you know, a, a rescue boat house. What do they do? They're just looking out. And slowly, they begin to remodel the boathouse. And they are making one thing or another. And they are making very comfortable. Now it became a private yacht club. Used to be boat rescue boathouse. I think that, that could be the tragic story of many churches. When churches forget its mission, we become a yacht club or upper-class social club, rather than life-saving both class. So my final you know, point of today's message is this. Let us renew our commitment to BIPs this fall. Amen? I think a fall season is a great time to reach out to BIPs. We have a term BIPs in our church, those are new. Those are unsaved friends and family members. We call them VIP because Christ said, I came to find the lost. They are important people to God, very important people to God. You know, Thanksgiving and Christmas is a great time to reach out to lonely people, lonely friends. So let's really renew our commitment to VIPs. I just want to say, church may seem like a weak, antiquated, idea to you, but remember the Lord of all creation, chosen to indwell church, and the rise from the death of so the church might rise from ashes of a world disdain and contempt. And our world needs to see power of Jesus to transform crowd of sinners into the community of an eternal saint. We might be a rat tag groups of misfit by Christ, grace and power and love, we will be the radical disciples that mirror God's love for all. Let's pray.